From Hype HQ in Chicago, Illinois, Startup Hype Man presents the Goat to Market Show. What's up, everyone? I am your host, Raj Nation, the founder and chief pitch artist of Startup Hype Man. This podcast is where we bring you founders, company leaders, and creatives who are building it, who are doing it, who have been there and done that. And they pull back the curtain on their go-to-market strategies so that you can build a venture that you love and become the GOAT of your industry. Want first listen on episodes before anyone else? Subscribe to our newsletter at StartupHypeMan.com. You will get alerts every Sunday morning when we release new episodes. All right, let's hear how today's guest is becoming the GOAT. Welcome back, everybody, to the Goat to Market show. Today, we've got part two, the continuation of a conversation we started last week with Christopher Deutsch, the founder of Lofty Angels and the Lofty Syndicate. The conversation started with how to become an angel investor. And where we left things off was, well, you are, if you are an angel investor, like what does that really mean moving forward? And how do you make decisions? How do you get involved? And, and how do you decide where you're going to invest your money or not? And so today's conversation is going to be is going to pick up where we left off. As a reminder, before we go any further forward, because this content is around the topic of investing, everything we talk about today is purely for educational entertainment purposes and is not intended to be individual financial advice. Of course, contact a professional for you if you need that. This is educational and entertainment purposes. So Chris, welcome back to the show. Glad to have you back. Yes. Thanks, Raj. I'm excited to continue our our awesome discussion on Angel. So- we talked the other week about, you know, what does it take to become an angel? And you, you know, you walk through your framework of how to make investments in the first three to five years. Um, you covered off, you know, allocate how much money you want to put out over that three to five years, and then how much that means per year, how many deals you want to go through in the process, right? A really, really powerful framework. Uh, even like looking at, hey, what's your what are you investing in? And then you talk about the anti-list as well. What did you not invest in and what happened there and why? To really think about then what's your strategy for the next three to five years. Where I want to take today's conversation is what does it mean to really be an angel? Like you've made these investments. So let's start with like, what's your stance on? And and, and I, you know, we started that episode. I was like, I gave you all the credit in the world for being like the most actively involved investor I think I've ever seen. Um, like right now you're wearing a T-Bot shirt, right? That's one of your, that's one of your portfolio companies. Um, you, you even have uh, had the title with T-Bot of re-founder. So not co-founder because you did not co-found the business, but you kind of helped reignite it. So you're the re-founder. Um, what's your stance you know, across the board on how involved an angel should be? And perhaps maybe talk through the lens of like why you've decided to be so involved. Uh, I'll, I'll answer the, the latter first, really by accident, because I love it so much. It's, um, if you don't really love working with the founders and you shouldn't work with them because they got enough headaches anyway. And, uh, and if you're, you love it, you love, uh, the, the problem solving, you love the, um, getting your hands dirty and getting into the trenches and you're able to do that in a way that is is helpful and productive for them, then by all means, 
do as much as 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 they as they can um, uh, they can get of your time. Um, but you really ought to you ought to love it and uh, and and be able to add value. And and so the the question with that then is if you do love it, um, how do you know if you're adding value? And the way you'll know that is is very easy. They'll be pinging you for more help. They'll be texting you. They'll be emailing you. They'll be um, wanting to get together and and have meetings. And um, and if you offer more of your your assistance and and show that you're willing to uh, roll up your sleeves and dig in even more, and they take you up on that, then things evolve. And um, Tbot's a good example. I, I really started as an incredibly small investment. It was just a $10,000 investment because it was actually off thesis for me. They were a Y Combinator company uh, that that was uh, summer 2015. Um, uh, my thesis then, then and, and now was Chicago startups and they were outside of Chicago, but what's more fun than tea and robots? And, um, <laughs> and so it just seemed like a fun Conver, conver, uh, Can you actually give a quick overview of what T-Bot is actually? Because yeah, I don't I, think a probably, lot of listeners would know. Yeah, that's probably uh, a good idea. Um, T-Bot, it started as a consumer, think of it almost as a vending machine for blending different types of uh, tea ingredients. Um, and I'm, I mean vending machine because you'd walk up to this thing and pay three bucks and be able to choose from 18 different ingredients and mix them together in different combinations and get your own custom blend of tea. Um, the evolution of that has really turned into it's it's the same functional robot. It's just now free for um, employees. We put this as an amenity in big companies like Google, HubSpot, 1871, Accenture, uh, the list continues in those sorts of big uh, office environments that have to have all the awesome perks and all the awesome things to uh, bribe employees to work there and come <laughs> into the office and all that kind of stuff, and also to retain them. So we call T-Bot today uh, a recruiting, retention, and now magneting tool to get employees uh, to the company in the office and come back into the office. Um, but but that that all evolved really because I started to roll up my sleeves and get involved when um, right after I invested, our first bot in the U.S. was launched in the Google office here in the West Loop, and it was so much fun. I, I, I mean, I can't tell you. I was a brand new investor. I was standing next to the T bot all day the first day that the the Google office was open to their employees, and hearing all of their reactions was just the most fun I think I've ever had in a single day as an investor. Um, Raymond and I, the founder, are standing next to it. And, and the Google employees are walking into this brand new. Um, it's like, if you've been to a Google office, it's like Disneyland for geeks, right? <laughs> yeah. It's just like every kind of bell and whistle and every cool thing. So they're walking around like googly-eyed, sort of pun intended. <laughs> um, and then they get to the the T-Bot and they freak out even more, if that's even possible. And I'm sitting next to it, writing down all these notes in my Evernote. My favorite... Uh, quote from the day, we're in this beautiful new building and all anybody can talk about is T-Bot. So shortly after that, I more than doubled my investment. I spent about a half day every other week there just talking to uh, uh, the Google employees to get more feedback. And the biggest reason for that was it was the first time that we took the credit card reader off the T-Bot. And so this was I'm giving. I'm going a little bit deeper here because you asked a really good question. This was where the slippery slope came from of why I got so involved with this company and why I end up getting so involved with a handful of the companies that I work with. It's because there's something that's really fun or something that I become curious about or something that I've got 
some degree of expertise or knowledge. Um, and, and those are all just really organic. So uh, uh, the T-Bot situation is a, is a major one-off where that is the one situation where I'm refounder. Um, I'm, I'm investor, I'm board member and refounder, which is basically, we make, came up with the name just to indicate I'm a new co-founder. And I wasn't there at the very beginning as, as, a, as a founder. So we wanted a different name. Um, that's a unique thing. I'm probably not going to do this again. Um, this takes up about a third of my time. Uh, the other third of my time are with a bunch of other companies in the, in the Lofty family that I invest more time in than just I would as a normal investor. Um, and, in, and in all of those instances, I'm earning a little bit additional equity as an advisor to make an argument for why I should be going overweight in these other companies um, and why I can justify that to not just the other portfolio companies. So they're not like, hey, man, I need a lot more of your time. Um, I could say I, I really... I, I can only give so much if I'm an investor um, of my own personal direct time. Um, otherwise, we we have to create like an advisor situation. And there's been a handful of those where they just have evolved uh, into that because there's mutual interest. And I always want to make sure that there's strong mutual interest. Um, and by the way, if you're a founder listening to this, if you ever work with somebody as an advisor, just two quick rules of thumb. Those are always going to be vested options and it should really be sub point. So it's like 1% to potentially like uh, 0.1% or whatever that would be, um, depending on the stage of your company. Don't uh, don't offer up huge amounts of your company uh, to advisors. Uh, there's there's stuff you can Google um, about this. Y Combinator, I know, has written about this. And I think TechCrunch has an old article that still applies. So be very, be very careful with your, your equity. And if an investor is always asking for equity alongside their investments, that should be a huge flag. I think about 10% of the companies I've invested in, I also have some additional advisor uh, relationship. Um, and then everybody else in the portfolio, I help as much as I can, but it's much more ad hoc. It's not like, you know, standing calls and, you know, lots of uh, standing meetings and such. Um, it, it's it's more as the, the platform. So as, as you and I, Raj, were talking about Lofty Camp, that's something that we're doing next month that all of our founders are invited to. And our Lofty Roundtables are things that all of our founders are invited to. And we've got a lot of stuff that everybody's involved with. And when they're raising capital, I try to make introductions for all of our founders and stuff. So um, anyway, it's sort of a long, windy answer. But uh, the real, like, to come back to the conclusion of that, you really have to love this if you want to like roll up your sleeves and get more involved with the founders. You can still be an angel and keep a relative like arm's length relationship. Uh, that's fine too. I'm, I'm certainly not saying if you want to be an angel, you got to really get involved and you have to add value everywhere. That that's that's um uh, that's not required uh, in any way. Even if you're investing directly on the cap table, and especially true if you're investing through intermediaries like uh, syndicates or um, roll-up vehicles or um, you know other other kind of SPVs. So, um, so I would just say anybody that's that's that like really loves this, especially if you have like a background in startups or something that's potentially beneficial for startups, like maybe you're a lawyer or what have you, you can add other uh, perspectives. Um, just start to uh, test the waters with the founders, and and if they if they re reciprocate and and want more, then that's when um, that's when you'll really know uh, that you've got a good fit there. Uh, one piece of advice, though, 
the the one the, like the the one law one rule of of angel investing is do no harm so please don't don't send your your founders on wild goose chases don't don't throw shiny balls at them uh and and make them uh thinking about other things that they ought to be doing with their platforms uh be very very careful with the advice and the amount of time that you take of theirs because it's really really valuable and by no means give advice in areas that you don't have expertise on if they ask a question say i don't know the answer to that but I might know some people that do. I'm happy to make intros or or, or just back off. Um, we don't want to. The worst thing we can do is actually hurt our our founders uh, with advice or, or actions that we do. So do no harm is like the first rule of angel investing. With the amount of involvement that you've had with some of your startups, um, how do you balance? Like, because inevitably from that, you know, a stronger relationship is developed, right? Um, but how do you balance that against the fact that technically they do still have to like report to you, right? Because you are, you know, an equity holder in their company. Um, uh, also to, to, yes. So, I mean, technically they, they report to me because almost every startup I have does some cadence of, uh, of company updates, uh, in the early stages, those are typically about once a month. If you're in, um, an accelerator, they send those like once a week, which is just crazy overwhelming. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think that they're doing that more for themselves just so the accelerator is keeping track of, of their progress. But, um, but typically you're getting like once a month to once a quarter, uh, of updates, but I am such a minority investor in really every uh, deal that I'm doing that I don't really look at them in the same way that a venture capitalist might, where they own somewhere between five to 10% of the company and, and have a board seat and different kinds of governance um, and, uh, and, and structure around those investments that um, that I, I tend to not pursue or have. Um and, and as a result of that, I'm probably always going to have more of, uh, I got your back. Um, I'm, we're more in this together, uh, than if it was like the VC founder relationship that it should never be adversarial, like absolutely should never be adversarial, but it's a very different animal. Um, and also because I'm more risking my own capital. It's a little bit different when I come in with the syndicate, but still not the same as uh, a venture capitalist who is has fiduciary and is managing other people's money, there is a different level of stress for those managers and a different level of um, uh, of oversight that they really need to have. I, I'm doing this more, of course, I don't want to lose any of the capital that I invest, but I'm anticipating that I'm going to lose capital as venture capitalists do as well. Uh, and I'm looking at this, I don't want to say that not all VCs do this, but I'm not entirely sure that they all do. I have a 30 to 40 year view, like long, long view on this. Assuming that the founders that I'm backing are good people and I was right about my four criteria, whether this company that I'm working with them on right now or not works out, I want to be the first person they talk to when they're looking for their next check. And uh, and really, um, I mean, that's not the reason I'm doing this. It's it's like it's another reason um, why why I, I I guess I I play more the the good cop or you mm-hmm. know the the nice parent versus you know the more hard ass parent. It's probably just also not quite my personality. Um, yeah, it, it gets it gets challenging. Like I'll, I'll be honest, there's a situation I'm in right now with one of our founders that is 
um, less than 30 days of runway. And I'm trying to do a little bit of like shaking that person to like, mm-hmm. you know, help them have a realization, not because I'm trying to be like a jerk or like a really like angry, tough investor. I'm doing it out of tough love because I don't want them to lose the opportunity in front of them. There's an enormous amount of potential in this company and in this founder. Uh, and so you, you just have to have some degree of EQ also. Um, and, uh, and wherewithal to know when you should inject those little bits of of tough love and when you really got to pull that back. I'll give a really good example that's universal of when you got to pull that back. They came to you with an email saying, we're shutting the company down, right? Like Mm -hmm. when that happens, just trust me, that is the hardest email that this founder has ever sent, unless this is the second time they've shut down a company. And that might even make it even harder because it's their second time they've had to shut down a company. Your first reply to them, and it should be immediate when you get that email is, I'm so sorry. This is a very hard situation. I've been there before. I have other founders that have been there before. What can I do to help? Uh, and and just be there with open arms. There's there's There'll be a time for a postmortem later and help them think through. That time is not now. It is helping them through this incredibly challenging uh, period. And, and when I say this, I mean it. Um, there are mental health crises that occur with founders at a higher rate than, than most normal um, or average jobs. So we have to be very, very thoughtful and cognizant of that. And, and the mental stability of a founder in that situation is really of the paramount importance. So um, if you do angel invest and you get that email, don't, you know, throw the middle finger and get, you know, like, how can you help? And and by the way, that actually creates more value than you realize because the founders will tell each other, man, when I was really down, like down and out, and it was hard. This, this investor had my back. Again, that's not why you're doing it, but it's amazing how like just giving empathy and helping in the times when it's maybe less likely or less logical from a founder's perspective that that would happen from an investor. That's when you need to do it most. And that's actually where you're, where everybody's going to win the most. So anyway, again, another long answer. I apologize, but these are, no, asking- it's good, but it's, you know, having been there myself before, um, my first business, we had to shut down, you know, and there were no yeah. investors in it or anything like that, but you feel like the world is laughing at you. Yeah. And it's not the case. Uh, right. You feel like the world is laughing at you, but I will tell you a, you know, a confidant, you can maybe call him an advisor that I had just the, the two minute conversation that mm-hmm. I had with him where he kind of just helped me see it's not the end of the world. Yeah. meant so much to me. Um, you know, I, I like forever have that person's back now and it really helped me like bounce back. Like I would say rather quickly for what felt like, you know, like, cause you, your company becomes your identity when you're a founder. Yep. And so you lose your identity when you decide to shut down and, and right. it's the ability to have people around you who can support you in that moment is so, so vital to being able to do the next thing, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, quicker and and better. Now, one of the things you mentioned in your response was you you kind of casually brushed over. You said like you know, assuming they've met the four founder requirements. Um, let's talk through that now, because as as someone who's getting into angel investing, they're trying you know they're trying to figure out okay, who do I pick? Who do I not pick? You've sort of mapped out 
this set of requirements you have when you look at founders? Can we walk through those? Yeah. Um, quickly, uh, the first is giver in the Adams, Adam Grant give and take book sense. Um, so I, I want them to be uh, a true giver, have to be brilliant, speaks for itself, uh, gritty, scrappy, be able to do a lot with a little. And then the fourth is where it gets a little bit more into the weeds and a little bit more nuance. Uh, it's where I say the rubber hits the road. It's problem founder fit, which is not solution founder fit. It's not the, the founder falling in love with the solution, their hypothesis to what the answer is actually going to be the solution to that problem. It's it's a deep hate for the problem because the solution is going to be malleable and it's going to shift based on the market and the and the, the customers. Uh, so those are those are my four criteria. Oh, we, and, and, and quick point, that's my four criteria for the founder. There are like just because I'm investing at such an early stage, 90 plus percent of the diligence I'm doing is on the founder slash co-founders. So that's why so much of my emphasis is on the four criteria for the founders. Uh, there is like the basic stuff, which is like, is the market big enough? Uh, is the timing right? And like, do I do I think that this is a, a real problem? Like, is this something that that needs that needs a solution? People are going to be willing to pay for it. But those, like, I'm just assuming those are yeah, those are more or less binary. If I can't get past that, it doesn't even matter about uh, doing diligence on the founder. But most of the diligence that I'm doing is post like yes, 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 like checking those boxes. It's then digging into uh, the founder as you go later stage the emphasis becomes less on founder slash team and more on product revenue. Like it becomes much more quantitative versus qualitative. The earlier you are in the investment, the more qualitative, the later, more quantitative. Let's unpack this a little bit more though. So giver, not taker. And for those who have not read the Adam Grant book, maybe you can just do a quick debrief of what, like, what is that? I mean, it's kind of obvious, but I think there's a little bit more nuance to it. So can you share what that is? Um, I'm going to use my favorite example, not to get political here, but, um, I'm, I'm pretty, you're going to, (laughs) yeah. I mean, it's not, you know, I guess define political (laughs) as you want. Um, uh, think of there's a, there's a continuum of, uh, uh, giver, taker, giver on on one end, taker on the other. And then like in the middle is matchers and, um, and givers think of the example of like mother Teresa, like just completely altruistically gives without the expectation of ever receiving. They are totally selfless. Um, and I call that like a 10. So on the negative 10 of the spectrum, think of that as, um, like a Trump that is just like, I'm going to suck the life force out of you. I'm going to take everything you have for my own benefit. Um, because I can, and I want to, and screw you. And then in the middle, like in the zero, you know, like plus or minus, like in the zero area of that, um, that spectrum is, uh, the matchers and they're keeping a mental ledger. Like, oh, I did this favor for you. You're doing this favor for me. It's, I, I sort of, uh, picture the Godfather, like, you know, I'm going to do this favor for you. And someday (laughs) I'll ask for the favor in return. It's like, that's (laughs) the classic matcher. So you think of like politicians and, you know, those kinds of people. So, um, so Really, the, the the concept of uh, givers, takers, and matchers is like, do the best you can to surround yourself with givers, avoid takers like the plague, and just you'll navigate the matchers because matchers just exist. Uh, and so for me, when I'm investing, I'm trying to create a community of, we have 159 founders in the Lofty family. And I would say the absolute, absolute vast majority of those I've been right about that really are givers, you know, like an eight to an 11 on the giver scale 
I've been wrong about a couple and mm -hmm. you're never going to be hundred percent right. Cause takers are like, there's another movie I like to reference the talented Mr. Ripley. Like they are trying to hide this, their motivations and like, you know, they're, they're evil. I mean, there's no other way to say like takers are inherently evil. And so um, they're really good at like pulling the wool over. So don't feel bad when that happens. And I've had to excommunicate a couple, but the goal with having giver being the first criteria that I'm I'm looking at, and those four are, are ranked, like giver is the most important. A is like life is too short. I don't have to do this. And if I'm going to do this, I want to build a community of like just the best people that I can surround myself with, because it's not just good for me. It's going to be good for the other founders that they're in, interacting with. They're going to want to help each other. Um, so that's, that's more or less what giver is. The second one on your criteria was brilliant. Yeah. So how do you do, like how do you quantify that? How do you gauge brilliance? You you know it's like what that uh, um, that senator said like it's like porn you know you know it when you see it like when you <laughs> like talk to somebody who's just brilliant you go your jaw drops you know like clearly they have just a wealth of knowledge intellect that is stunning. I'll give you an example. I was not kidding on a zoom with a 16 or 15, 15 year old might've been. And I cold solicited him before the end of the zoom to be his first investor. <laughs> He's wow. like a sophomore in high school. And, and his response was, Oh, that's great. I appreciate it, but I actually don't need the investment. Um, I'm a <laughs> fellow in Matsuyoshi son's uh, fellowship, which searches for like eight to 18 year old savants. Um, wow. He's the founder of SoftBank. So when I heard this, I, it like made me even more FOMO. Um, and we developed a great relationship. I've been a mentor to him for a long time. Um, I actually wrote a letter of recommendation for his college searches and he, he's going to Stanford in the fall. So I've, wow. I've known him for a couple of years now. So that's like a great example of like, it doesn't matter the eight, like there's just this like incredible brilliance that some people just have. Um, it could also be focused in like an area or it could just be like, overall, they're just yeah. And and I look at it, uh, a young guy like that, and I'm just like, wow! I wish I had, you know, a tenth of of the capacity he has. So now, in that note of like, you're like, you can just kind of tell the way they talk, right? What they talk about. I'm, I I want to get your opinion on this because I'm, I'm guessing that doesn't mean that they they just keep hitting you with like AI buzzword this, AI buzzword that. Let me keep telling you about all the things our product does. That's not what you mean when you say like that they speak with brilliance, right? Absolutely. I'm, I'm, if you're listening, I'm shaking my head as no. Yeah, it's 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 a um, it, you know I, I'll I'll give another uh, I'll, I'll throw another wrinkle in here. Um, I have like in my spiritual view of the world, I have more of a Eastern philosophy, Eastern religiony kind of flavor where. I believe in a flavor of reincarnation. Um, mm -hmm. It's actually more aligned with uh, simulation theory. I've been going down this rabbit hole since before <laughs> simulation theory was. That'll a thing. be part three of the podcast. <laughs> That's a right part three. We're going to do that much later. Uh, but but I I have this like there's a there's a two year old that is at my son's preschool and my wife and I are like this kid is an old soul like there's just no other way to describe it like you have some karmic knowledge that you can't put your finger on. And so that's a little bit of what I'm talking about where there's just like, God, you have insights and experiences sort of knowledge beyond your years. Like it just doesn't 
like it's mathematically, I don't know mm-hmm. how you could pull that off when you're 15 years old or two years old or, you know, whatever that is. So, um, so it's more to that. It's just, there's this incredible um, propensity, uh, aptitude, um, uh, really potential. And, 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 and you're just seeing like the early glimpses, the early uh, indicators of that. And that's not always like, sometimes I'm investing in founders that are older than me and I'm, I'll, I'll be 48 in a week just to give perspective. So I've got certainly founders that are much older than me. And like, that's a different kind of animal, but very often the founders I'm investing in are like somewhere in the half my age range and and maybe, you know, even less than that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so you just like, you have that sense and maybe, maybe I'm particularly good at that. I don't think I am. I think most people would have a conversation with the founders that I'm referring to and say like, yeah, this person's just, there's just something really brilliant about them. The third was the the scrappiness, the grittiness. How do you, how do you suss that out? How do you like, what, what's your, what's your gauge? How are you finding that? I, this is not a hard one. I mean, this is, this becomes pretty uh, quantitative. Um, They'll been bootstrapping for the past six months, two years, sometimes longer, working on something as a side project. Uh, they, they're, they're maybe they've got a little bit of savings or something built up, but they're like really, really being lean and and just spending every dollar with absolute, um, uh, like, a, a, they're putting a magnifying glass on all expenses. And and very, very conscious of how they're spending their time too. It's not, I mean, they're all like the gritty scrappy. That's all about your, your overall resources. And, and, and part of your resources are also your time. It's not just your capital. Really, arguably your most valuable is your time as the founder because or, or co-founders um, because the, the time that you're spending is, is incredibly finite. You can't scale that like hiring more people. Um, so, so just really being hyper-focused and, and so good at, um, uh, delegating is a little, maybe a little bit further, but, um, but prioritizing, and this is actually an area that I'm not great. I think I've, I've been forced to get better at this because I'm managing <laughs> so many companies and so many founders. And like, I think it's, it's, do a you have like any team? Function. Cause I don't know how you're doing all this yourself. <laughs> Uh, a little bit, a little bit of team. Actually, uh, there's a young guy, uh, Spencer, who's off the charts, um, who, who helps with the the syndicate. He's raised his own fund. He's a great example of somebody who you just talk to and you're like, brilliant. I met him when he was an undergrad at University of Chicago. And although the, the company he was building then wasn't a fit for me at the time, I just didn't understand the problem well enough. It was too like Gen Z or millennial or something. Um I said, this is, this is a kid that I want to stay involved with down the road and continue that relationship. And he reached out to me and asked, like, can I help during COVID? And so that's, he became director of operations and really helped with a lot of this platform stuff. And that's evolved now more into the syndicate, which was his idea. We, we run together and now he runs, he just closed. Actually, I probably shouldn't say uh, he has, he has <laughs> a, uh, he has a, a crypto uh, fund um, that he also operates uh, so that's a lot more of his time, but, um, but yeah, he, he helps a little bit. We've had some interns, um, and I'm, I'm going to be hiring somebody. If anybody's listening to this and they want to, they want to get involved uh, with what we're doing, we are going to be hiring somebody as like a part-time 10 to 15 hour a week platform kind of position. Um, you'll have to have a full-time job still, but, um, 
but I do need help with this. So anyway, that, that like super, super aggressive with their prioritization. They're very stingy and greedy with their time and their capital, because if you can do that before you have capital, specifically my capital and other capital, you're going to be much, much more uh, ready and prepared to uh, to deploy that and and make strategic investments with that capital and your time um, post fundraise. So that's really important. Your fourth piece in your criteria is problem founder fit. Mm-hmm. How are you assessing that? What what equals problem founder fit? <clears throat> um, this can be a little bit complicated, but the most simple way is to say, I am I as a founder lived the problem. I'll give you a personal example. I created this thing called WeCasa, which by the way, I'm, I'm going to be sunsetting because I invested in a company with two founders that are doing something very, very similar. It's not exactly the same thing, but very similar. And I don't have time to run with this uh, with this beast anymore of WeCasa. Um, it's a, it was a family, um, uh, excuse me, it's a um, home sharing platform for people who have extra space in their homes, but only want to share it with people they trust. So friends or friends of friends. And if somebody uh, takes you up on that offer through the platform, you send this in, invite, et cetera, instead of them paying you like on Airbnb, which would be weird because you're friends or like you have the friend Halo because it's a friend of a friend, they make a donation to a nonprofit that the host supports. And, and that's what yeah. Wikasa is, was, but I'm in the process of transitioning and pushing that into this other company called Komu, um, which does materially very similar stuff. So I had this problem personally because uh, we had extra space in our home and we wanted to share it and nobody would take us up on it and drove me absolutely nuts. It felt like scraping good food down the disposal and that just feels wasteful in the same way that like there's extra space and like it could be creating money for a nonprofit and, and people could be getting benefit. So we created this because I felt that problem and I was the biggest user of it. And we drove over $10,000 of uh, donations from uh, our spare uh, bedrooms uh, and our fourth floor to uh, to this nonprofit we supported. And we created all these amazing relationships. It was awesome. Like really lived the problem. That is a great example because nothing that I was talking about was easy. Nothing that I was ta- like, I, I put six figures of my own capital into that. I took no outside investment because I didn't know if there was uh, a, a real product market fit opportunity here. I thought there was, but I didn't want to risk that until other people's money, until we we had um, we had real clear uh, definition of that. So I lived the problem. It was a problem that pissed me off. And no matter what I was going to go through, I want to see this problem through to the point where I'm actually sunsetting a company that I put six figures into because I, I want to inject my energy, my lens into another company that has these other founders that are going to champion that and take the time. I, I can't do that anymore, unfortunately. Um, and, and like finding a founder to take it over is too hard. So with all that said, I lived the problem. Um, it was going to, the problem, it carries you through the dips, right? So a founder's journey has the, the highs and the lows. And when you go through the highs, like everything's up into the right, it's awesome. Like no problem. But when you hit those lows, it's so easy to pull the ejection handle if you're just in it for the money or you Googled like billion dollar problems to solve. And that's fine. You can do that. But but by taking other people's money at that point, you're now putting their capital at risk. So mm-hmm. this is actually something I gut check that I would recommend to all founders. Am I starting a, a problem? Excuse me. Am I starting a startup that I 
hate the problem because I've lived it. And it's like, I'm not going to really be able to rest well until I know this problem is dead. So don't fall in love with the solution that you think, right? Because the market's going to help guide you to what that solution ought to be. That's the product market fit uh, uh, idea. Um, don't fall in love with your solution, your, your hypothesis. Don't drink your own Kool-Aid. Let the market, you got to go to market with something though, but let the market guide you to, you know, what that actually, what that outcome should be. One of the things we always tell the founders that we work with when we're developing their pitch is it's important to be able to show or demonstrate how the company you're, you're the company you're creating is an extension of how you think it's an extension of your brain. Yes. Um, so whether it is you directly worked in that industry, like that's obviously good, but even beyond that, like what are the examples you can show throughout life where solving problems in this way has repeatedly shown up? Like whether you were 12 years old or 18 years old or 28 years old or 38 or 58 years old, how do you, how do you, how do you let someone else know that doing things in this way is kind of the only way you know how to function? And that's why, like, that's why you're doing it now. It's just, it's the next manifestation of the, the way you approach the world, essentially. Yeah, it's, that's great. That's a great advice that you're, you're giving for sure. I want to spend the last part of our conversation transitioning into this concept that you're championing around getting more founders to be angels. But before we hit there, I want to just take a step back for a moment all of this conversation is really around like how to like looking at startups as they're getting off the ground. So you as the founder who is listening to this, how are you getting off the ground, particularly when it comes to your product? And what are you doing to develop your app, your SaaS, your your marketplace, your platform, whatever it might be? Are you going to an offshore team? If so, well, potentially you're opening yourself up to a lot of bad code. Uh, and the potential of one person to just flip a switch who you don't even really know and your entire app is killed. That's why it's really important to have a partner on the ground uh, onshore. And that partner is Akeva. They are the partner in software development to help you go from zero to one. So that could mean you're building on blockchain or no chain, web three, web two, mobile apps, SaaS, marketplace, you name it. Akeva builds it at startup speed and enterprise level refinement. That's why so many startups, Stride, Haveno, Olive, just to name a few, trust Akeva from their first dollar all the way up to their billion dollar valuation. And they're ready to help you become the goat to market. And they've got a really cool offer right now. And that is a you call it code review. What is that? Well, Akeva will review the most critical parts of your code so you can see exactly what your tech needs to launch or to scale up. And they'll do this completely free. And then you call it from there. You want to handle things on your own? You call it. Want to get Akeva's dev help? You call it. Want to take it somewhere else? You call it. It's truly like an unbeatable offer. And I'm telling you, this you call it code review has saved so many startups from peril, including uh, one fintech startup uh, that we know who found that they were about to launch and they did previously use an offshore development team. And they had they launched, they would have exposed every user's PII data to the public and they wouldn't have known it, but that's how poorly the app was built. Akeva's You Call It Code Review found that for them so they understood what they needed to get fixed before launching. To see if you qualify for a You Call It Code Review, just head to akeva.io 
and mention this show, Startup Hype Man or Goat to Market. That's Akava, A-K-A-V-A dot I-O, Akava dot I-O. Today on Startup Hype Man's Goat to Market show, we're having our part two conversation with Chris Deutsch from Lofty Angels on how to become an angel investor and really how an angel thinks. Chris, the last part of our conversation here, I want to focus on this cause you've been taking up over the last year or so, and that is helping founders become angels. Talk to me about why that's an important cause for you and and what that really means for the ecosystem at large. Yes. Um, I became an angel by accident when I was 23 years old in 1998. So almost um, over half my life ago, about 25 years ago. And, uh, and, and by making that first investment, I at the time didn't realize it, but you flip a switch when you make, when you put your own capital, you got skin in the game on something now and you become, uh, you, you change the way or add another lens, if you will, but you, you change the way you think. Uh, and you can apply that to your own business, to pitch decks, to, to whatever. So there is a a lot of value um, in becoming an angel before you have that big exit, before you uh, get your hundred million dollar payout or whatever as a founder that we all we all hope um, founders receive. Um, there are three reasons that I'm very excited about helping founders learn angel earlier. Um, I touched on one of them. If I'm listening to your pitch, Raj, and I and I go, wow, this is really interesting, cool. Like I think you did a good job. That's fine, but um, it's a whole nother when I hold a thousand dollars in my hand and say, I believe in you so much that I'm willing to invest that in your company and risk losing it completely because I think the upside is is much higher than the risk to lose it. And um, and by doing that, you flip the switch. So that's really valuable. You you create this lens that you can now use as a founder. And that's like, it's also a little bit of Sun Tzu. If you're sitting down and doing um, a negotiation for term sheet with your uh, potential investor, you're understanding more why they're asking the questions that they are, because you are thinking more like, of, like an investor. And in each and every investment you make, the more you start to understand how investors think, the more that becomes a lens and the more value you're going to create. So that's one. Number two is like diversification. Um, I am an investor with 88 companies uh, in a handful of like dozen or so of those have already gone out of business. That's fine. That happens, right? If your company goes out of business as a founder, all your eggs are in that basket. That is incredibly high risk. So it behooves you as a founder to actually figure out ways that you can spread some risk around. And if you can, mm-hmm. if you're able to, to write 12 checks at a thousand dollars a piece over the next couple of years, that's not zero capital, but it's manageable potentially on depending on what stage you're at and, and how much uh you're you're able to pay pay yourself. Um, even a thousand bucks, you're gonna say, Well, what really, like if there's a big outcome, what's a thousand bucks really gonna get you? Well, I'll give an example. Um, my partner on T-Bot uh, made a four-figure investment. He was the first check into a company um, that he helped get into Y Combinator. And because he was that first check, it's such a, a, a low valuation. When they went, went public, that four-figure check was worth seven figures. So even wow. at a thousand dollars, it's it's not nothing. Um, so so that's uh, my argument against uh, uh, people that that would that would that would shoot down a, a low, low check size. And then the third is really my big evil plan. It's 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 what I get <laughs> out of this. Um, 
there aren't, you know, I, I, I think I said this on the last one. If I didn't, I, I like to say I want to be first check, but not last check when I come in on, on investments. And what that means is even at the top of my ten dollars to $100,000 range, a first round is almost never $100,000. It's much more likely somewhere between two fifty dollars to $500,000, even on the low end. So if I come in at even $100,000, I need to bring in other investors alongside me in order for that round to be closed. They can hit the milestones they need to get to the stage they, they need to in order to raise their additional uh, capital at the next round, yada, yada, yada. So it, it is in my best interest to make a first check and then bring in all the other checks alongside it to close out that round and even for sub- subsequent rounds. And when I'm doing that, I've realized there just aren't enough first check writing or first round writing angels in Chicago and, and really everywhere, right? There's, there's no reason we can't have more. Um, uh, supply and demand will definitely help founders. And it's also really good for, uh, for investors for the reason that, that I argued. So when I noticed there aren't enough uh, investors out there, I decided I need to create more. And so that's really what Lofty Angels is. I'm just open sourcing the 25 years of knowledge that I've developed uh, around angel investing and uh, doing it's effectively a podcast. We do uh, monthly Zooms with um, live Zooms where people in the Lofty Angels uh, get to listen to it uh, and ask questions live to me and other people like Troy Hennikoff, Amanda Lannard, Amanda Bruce, um, uh, Ryota Sakine, who's one of our founders, has turned uh, angel investor. Uh, so that's a... a that's really the goal. How can we give more access to knowledge and information at no cost? It's totally free. We will also give those founders access to, um, we'll, we'll give everybody in Lofty Angels access to our uh, syndicates when we do them, which we haven't done that many. We've only done five. Um, for most people that come in on the syndicates, there's a $5,000 minimum and a 20% carry, which we understand is not approachable to everyone. We can give you other uh, places where you can make investments because the goal is to get Access at whatever stage uh, makes sense for you financially. Republic, you can go as low as hundred dollars. Um, there's other; those are like a like a Kickstarter where you get equity, crowdfunding, equity campaigns. Um, there's other local uh, investment groups that that will go like one to two thousand dollar checks, like uh, Josephine Collective and um, and Chicago Early and others. Um, but for all our founders, we're giving them super preferred terms. So the founders that are the 159 founders in the Lofty family, if they want to start doing angel investments in the Lofty syndicate, so basically in their brothers and sisters in the Lofty family, we drop the minimum from 5,000 to 1,000, which is angelist minimum, and then we remove the carry. So we're trying to give them the ability to get these early reps and support each other in the Lofty family. Wow. And that's really going incredibly well. Uh, we've got probably 10% or so of our founders that have started doing that. And I'm sure that number will go up as we do more um, of these syndicated deals. We've just done only a handful over the past year and a half. But but whether they're learning with us in Lofty Angels, whether they're uh, going and in, in, in building uh, communities across other founders that they know and other angels that they know, I highly encourage founders early in their careers to learn angel for those those three reasons. And I, I just also think, you know, you, you briefly touched on it, but at a conceptual level and whether it is just maybe a few hundred dollars on Republic, you know, maybe you, you take $500 and you split it five ways across five companies on a Republic, a WeFunder, any of those platforms, conceptually, it'll help you understand how, quote unquote, the other side thinks, right? If you yeah. put some of your money on the line in any kind of scenario, you will see what am I like? What am I considering if I have to put my money down? And then right. that'll help you be more intelligent 
and how you build your own company, how you approach your own investor conversations. I just think, and that's really like, you know, one of the reasons like, you know, you and I got together maybe a year ago, right? Uh, when we had a, we had a tea together uh, with T-Bot. Um, a big reason I wanted to finally just like sit down and catch up with you was because one of my big things now with Startup Hype Man and being, being able to better serve our clients is to understand how do different kinds of investors think so we can be better you know, stewards to the founders who work with us. Yep. First of all, that's like, that's great. I'm, I'm glad um, that's your thought process and, and, um, and motivation behind this. Um, yeah. I mean, People in general are problem-solving creatures. Founders are just really, really good at it. But you have to put yourself in the environment where the problem exists in order for you to want to solve the problem. And if the problem is, how do I maximize investment return capital? Your brain's going to start spinning on those wheels, but you have to put yourself in the environment to actually start thinking about that. So if you're putting capital down, <laughs> you're going to be hyper-focused on, how do I solve the problem of getting a return on this capital and not losing it? And, and that's why it's really important to just put some amount of capital. $100 will do it. Obviously, $1,000, I think you're going to be a little bit more incentivized. You're going to be a little bit more. Um, but but I don't care how much it is. And, and your, your comment, take $500 and spread it across five deals. Yes, for the first year. Don't, don't, don't let that be your portfolio. Uh, you want to get at least to 10 to 15. Um, I use 12 in like a three-year period. So if you could do $500 a year on Republic and do that for five $100 investments, do that for a couple of years, you're already way ahead of the game. And look at that. That's $500 a year for three years. It's $1,500. Like most of us could probably figure out how to get $1,500 out of us over a three-year period. So um, yeah, I, I I just, I think it's it's invaluable. Um, certainly I'm not encouraging our pre-seed uh, founders to be doing this. Um, seed, you know, maybe, but certainly once you're getting into the letters, like the A, B, C, you're probably paying yourself in, like a normal salary at that point. Maybe you've even had an opportunity to take a little bit off the table. When you get to that, this is really something you ought to seriously be considering, even if it's just hundred or thousand dollar investments. Let's do our wrap up once again. Can you remind everybody you, you did it in the last episode, but can you remind everybody where they can learn more, where they can get in touch? Yeah. Um, loftyventures.com is very, uh, uh, easy. We got all our socials on there. Um, my personal, uh, Twitter account is Chris underscore Deutsch D E U T S C H. Um, and if you are interested in, I, I mentioned, we're going to be looking for a platform person, feel free to re- uh, reach out on email chris at loftyventures.com. Or if you have questions about angel investing, I am certainly happy uh, to chat with you and really give as much information as as I can. I I do a lot of this with uh, what I call the the angel curious. Angel curious. (laughs) Last week, um, I asked you who's one person you want to shout out. You said Amanda Lannert. do Do you want to stick with her or do you want to give another person a shout out? Well, I, I mean, I love Amanda and she's incredible. Um, and that, that one still holds. Don't worry. That yeah, one still, still holds. holds. But you, yeah. But I'll, I'll, give an, I'll give another one. And I'm going to call, I mean, it, this is two because they're really twinsies. Um, <laughs> I mean, even the name of their firm, Math Ventures, is there. Most people don't know this. Math is actually Mark Ackler, Troy Hennikoff uh, acronym. Um, I consider myself to be in the, the Mark Ackler, Troy Hennikoff uh, school of investing philosophy. Um, I've learned so much from both those guys. They are incredible uh, uh, mentors for me and for literally hundreds. And I mean this maybe at a minimum thousands of other uh, founders out there over uh, several decades, both professors, um, both give 
every ounce of blood, sweat, and tear they have uh, to support the community. And it really like what's amazing to see, it's not for the money. It's because they really, really love helping entrepreneurs. Uh, so if if um, if you're ever really like in a bind and you're looking for some some real help, I would try to find office hours for uh, Mark and Troy, and they both they both host them. At least I know Troy still does. I'm not sure if Mark's uh, a little bit closer to retirement. Finally met Mark at uh, Tech Chicago Week, and right. and he said he goes, "It's funny because you said people don't know the MAT." He goes, "I'm the MA in Math Ventures," and I was like, "Oh, I didn't know that's why it was called that." Because <laughs> they're such math guys too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. So I held off on this final question in our last episode. So I will ask it today. My final question, which is how we end really every episode of this show, fill in the blank, Chris. Entrepreneurship is blank. Really, really hard. (laughs) Really, really hard. But it should also be fun. If it's not fun, then do something else. Because the hard part you want to make sure that that's paired with something fun, but really, really hard. Entrepreneurship is really, really hard. The man spits truth. The man spits facts. He is Chris Deutsch with Lofty Ventures. And hey, as you were listening to this, did you have like a follow-up question that came to mind, but you were just listening on your side and you like, how do I ask Chris? Well, guess what? You can ask that because following this episode, Chris is hopping into Goat to Market Club. That's our online founder community for an Ask Me Anything, where you can continue to ask him questions about maybe if you are angel curious, what what do you want to know? You can ask him about a little bit more around his uh, founder framework, the four pieces, maybe around his angel investing framework. Anything's on the table. It's an Ask Me Anything with Chris coming up the whole week after this episode airs. To join Goat to Market Club, your first month is free, and then it's just $9 a month after that. Cancel anytime. It's a better deal than Netflix. All you have to do is go to startuphypeman.com slash GTM dash club. Startuphypeman.com slash GTM dash club. And you'll get basically the after party with Chris, plus all the other amazing content we're tossing in there, including exclusive access to certain workshops and trainings. Chris, one more time, thank you so much for joining us today on the Goat to Market Show. Thanks, Raj. See you at Lofty. That does it for this week's episode. Thank you again to our guests for joining and sharing their knowledge. Did you like what you heard? Well, leave us a rating and review on your podcast app before you head out of here. And while you're at it, who's one friend who you think would find value in hearing today's conversation? Go ahead and share the episode with them. I would really appreciate it. And I thank you for doing that. Remember, we've got more going down with our guest inside Goat to Market Club. Think of it like the after show, the after party, the after hours special. Our guest is going to hop inside the club and do an Ask Me Anything. So you can follow up with any of those questions that came to mind as you were listening. You can follow up and ask them to our guest inside our club. To join, just head to startuphypeman.com slash gtm dash club. Startuphypeman.com slash gtm dash club. GTM Club is $9 a month, but your first month is free. You can cancel any time. And you're not only getting the AMAs, you're also getting our monthly strategy drops that are for members only, where we're teaching hyper-specific tactical go-to-market strategies, plus cool member-to-member interactions and other bonus resources. All of that happens inside the club. So again, startuphypeman.com slash GTM dash club. We'll see you inside the club and we'll see you next week. But before you head out, remember, why be a unicorn when you can
can be the GOAT.